Um, good afternoon. Mike's working. Excellent. And thanks for coming along to see uh, my guest today, star of the show, Tom Kitchen, um, who's going to be talking about his new, his first uh, book. Um, can we call it a book of recipes or is it more than that, Tom? Yeah, I think it's definitely it's a book of recipes, but it's also a book about stories and where, how I got to where I am today. Kind yeah. Of yeah, and I should say right at the start, um, everybody's got their phone switched off. And a thank you to Edinburgh Chamber of Commerce who are sponsoring this event. Um, they're obviously in the hope of getting some tables now and again, don't they? <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with a show of hands. Hands up who's eaten at Kitchen. Bloody hell. Wow. Hands up who hasn't and wants to. <laughs> so that's the audience taking care of then. Uh, that's Still the whole got a audience. table on Thursday lunch if anyone's interested. <laughs> oh, didn't it? Oh, switchboard will be ringing off. Michaela's lucky she's in the audience here, not going to deal with the switchboard on that one. The mobile phones will be coming back out. Um, yeah, no, the, the, the reason that um, I agreed to chair this event is because I was thinking, that, well, I'll have to go down and, and research the restaurant, obviously, um, <laughs> and have a meal. But I haven't managed it yet, but I'm going to manage it later on this week. Um, but I found it, I mean, an absolutely fascinating book, Tom, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your life because. Um, I think a lot of people look at, the, especially these days, with the kind of the glamour, the, the sexy chef, you know, thing. They're on the telly all the time. They always make it look very easy. Mm -hmm. It looks like a really glamorous life, it isn't, is it? Uh, certainly not, no. Uh, I think television, you're, you've hit it on the head, television has glamorised cooking to something we've never experienced before. You know, wh when I started cooking, uh, I remember taking home economics as one of my subjects at school. and. It was brilliant. I was the only guy, and it was full of like 15 females. You know, I was in, I was in paradise. But it wasn't fashionable then. Yeah. And now, guys, girls, everyone wants to get into cooking, but hopefully they're not getting into it for the wrong reasons. You know, and thinking that it's a quick way to make lots of money. Because I tell you, there's a lot of hard work goes into getting to the stage I'm at now. Absolutely, and we're, go we're going to come to that. Um, but how, I mean, how, you know, d how did you get started? Were your parents into food? I mean, were you in the kitchen watching your mum do the home bacon and all the rest of it? That was brilliant. You, you were a big inspiration, weren't you, mother? <laughs> no, yeah, no, it was just a normal upbringing in that, you know, we, we ate well at home. Um, but when I was 13, I took a job in the local pub, the, the Loman Country Inn, just the other side of uh, Loch Leven, and uh, started washing the pots and pans to earn some pocket money. And that's just where the... The, the adrenaline of the kitchen kind of... But I'm, I'm, well, I mean, I've been 13. Uh, we've all been 13. I can't imagine many of us would have thought of doing that for pocket money. I mean, that's quite hard work straight away. Yeah, you, did you, you were you just intrigued by the idea of working in a kitchen? Yeah, exactly. I just, yeah, I, just, I just wanted to get into the kitchen, and then there was this great chef there. She was a proper cook, you know, and it was, um, it was one of these hotels where in the winter the shooters used to come in and then at night they'd come back and you'd have to pluck the pheasants and the grouse and all that kind of stuff. And then just the whole adrenaline of doing 50, 60 covers on a Friday, Saturday night. And I just loved it and I loved it. And um, fortunately the guy who owned the hotel had connections with Glen Eagles Hotel. And uh, he saw the uh, talent or whatever, the enthusiasm, and he managed to get me to go up to Glen Eagles and went on from there really. Mm -hmm. you, you, did, you did go to catering college. Went to catering uh, college at Perth College, left yeah. school at 16, and uh, thankfully mum and dad, uh, you know, they, they didn't stand in my way, they didn't, you know, say, oh, you've got to finish school. They knew that I was determined, I wanted to be a chef, there was nothing else I wanted to do, and uh, off I went to catering college at 16. Mm -hmm. So you were, I mean, that was you, that was what you wanted to do from that age, was be a chef? That was it, there was, that, it was just, it was just, I was just so determined to become a chef, and to get, I did, once I got to catering college, to be honest with you, I found it really frustrating because 
you know, it was it just wasn't giving me enough. I just because I'd experienced working in a professional kitchen already, I just wanted to get to Glen Eagles and, mm. and work there as quickly as possible. And were you at Glen Eagles full time? Went to Glen Eagles full time when I was seventeen. Massive kitchen, uh, seventy chefs. Um, it was tough. Mm. It was tough. You know. What, what, was, what were you doing? I mean, what, what if you're a very if you're very early in your career, you're at the start of your career, and you're working in a big kitchen like that? What are you doing? Uh, peeling. A lot of peeling. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of peeling. And, you know, when the, the kitchen's divided up into different hierarchy, right at the bottom is the commie chefs. You've got the pot washers, then you've got the commie chefs, and you've got like third commie chef, second commie chef, first commie chef. And then you've got. What, what, what are the commie chefs doing? A lot of peeling. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a push word for somebody. Yeah, who's, exactly. Who's no, you're doing. But this is fundamental in the you know learning to become a chef. You have to start right at the bottom. You have to learn how to clean properly. You have to learn how to pass the stocks, make the stocks. You know, f making chicken stock, veal stock, all these things, which are the basics of of you know gastronomic cooking. Mm. And that's what be you don't realise it when you're a young ki young commie. You think. Oh Jesus! I have to do this again. You know, and mm. you're doing another stalk, and you're getting shouted at to go faster. But when you look back on it in life, you realise that those things were really important at that time. I mean, I was certainly uh, the, the the introduction to this book is absolutely fascinating. It does you know it strips away the glamour. It just tells you, look, this is about hard work, hard work, perseverance, not losing the rag, sticking in there because it's the only thing you want to do, and learning, learning, learning all the time, and you never stop learning. But there's a bit in it where you've been, you seem to have been working at a restaurant for a while and then suddenly, yes, it's the big move, I'm on vegetables. <laughs> you know, after a year or so Aye. in a London restaurant, suddenly you're on the vegetables, that's a big move. But you've move. got to understand, when I left Glen Eagles, I went to work for a chef called Pierre Kaufman, who in my eyes is the, the legend of British gastronomy. You have the Rue brothers at the Gabaroche and you have Pierre Kaufman. And if you look at the chefs who have gone through his uh, restaurants, They've all gone on now and they've all got like, there's a lot of them who are the top chefs in the country mm. now. And I started, I went from Glen Eagles and I went down to La Tonclair and uh, I was on the Garmanger, which is the, the starter section. And I was picking a lot of salad and basically, and I was just trying to hide from the chef because he was a monster. <laughs> and, you know, sooner or later, you know that, you know, it's going to be your turn. Soon, sure enough, like about the third day, I got this size 12 up my bum, you know, bang, you know. And uh, there I was. This is London, three-star Michelin, and it was pretty serious stuff, and I was seriously out of my depth, mm. seriously. And I thought I was quite a good wee cook, you know. I'd been at Glen Eagles for a year and a half, quite tough. Mm. No. Mm -hmm. no. And you got, I mean, at one point you did get close to walking out, didn't you? Oh, not just one time. Yeah, uh, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's really tough, you know, and you're working in that kind of environment, and you're young and you're enthusiastic, but if you're getting told every day that everything you're doing is wrong, you start to think, well, hold on a minute, maybe, maybe I should have stayed where I was up at Glen Eagles, you know. Mm. But for some reason, you know, you, you start to, you, you get through those days, and that's what I'm, mm. we tried to get across in the book. It's, it's a very nice, I mean, it's a lovely portrait of, of Kaufman that comes across in the book in, in your introduction and, and other bits of the book, that, you know, it, when you were struggling on the fish, for example, he just came and quietly helped out. Yeah. And, it, and when you got it right, he never said, well done, you've got it right. He just went away and did something yeah. else. Yeah. Because he then trusted you. It's an astonishing thing. There's that kind of... It's not about, it, there's never any communication verbally, it's just all about he'll leave you alone if you're doing it right. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's, it's really strange now being in the roles of reverse now and I see young boys and girls coming through my own kitchen and I find myself like drifting back and thinking about those times, you know, when I managed to, there was this issue, there's this I talk about in the book, but filleting wild sea bass 
was the most daunting thing I've ever experienced at, at La Tonclair. And when you fill it a wild sea bass, you know, you're, it's, it's serious money you paid for this fish. And when you fill it out, the rib cage goes over. And every time I took the knife down, bang, the knife went through the stomach. And you knew, I knew that was coming out my wages. I mm. knew that was coming out my wages. So one day he, uh, I, I still hadn't managed it. He says, don't try it, don't try it, don't touch it, don't touch it. And I knew he was off to a meeting. And uh, in came like 12 wild sea bass. I was like, no, no. So it was like one of those moments, you know, do I go for it or do I just leave it? And I went for it and I did it. And he came in, looked at the fridge, looked at the sea bass, and never said a word. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it, and that was like the most rewarding day yeah. of my career so far. <laughs> but there were other days that you didn't get it quite so right, weren't there? Because he, he was a great believer in something you've learned, which is you never throw anything away. Mm. Tell him about the, 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 the fridge. Yeah, the fridge, chef. Uh, chef, you, when you're working at that level as well, you, you, you use every single part of the animal, every, you know, you peel a carrot and you use, if you, you, you know how you do turn carrots or, you know, Michelin star cooking, we like to cut things all nice little sizes and stuff. And there's always trimmings. So at the beginning, I thought, you know, I'll just, just get them in the bin, that'll be fine, keep my fridge clean. Bang! <laughs> that could have been the staff soup, that could have gone in the stock. Yeah, this idea that potato peelings that you'd kept, ah, you'd, you'd wrapped up in the fridge or something. Ah, that, yeah, that's right, yeah. So the, the time Ian's talking about is, um, I was on the vegetable section, the section we were talking about, and uh, I'd prepared the staff food, and the staff food had to be ready at 11.30 every day. But people have this like, thing about staff food, they think that chefs just throw it up and it's not that good. At Le Tonclair, it had to be tasty because the chef was going to eat it, and the maitre d'hotel was going to eat it, and the sommelier was going to eat it. And um, this one day, I was really busy, got everything, got put the staff food up, and uh, chef looked at the staff food, and then he went down to the fridge downstairs, and he found these uh, containers of potato trimmings, and apparently I should have used the potato trimmings. So he came back upstairs, Tom, yes, chef. And he threw the potato peelings right at me, smash, oh, Jesus all over the place and then he went into my drawers and he took all my uh, a la carte garnishes and so that's like my purees and my little potato crisps and all these kind of things that have taken me like five hours to prepare that morning put them all in a pan and popped them up for the staff and I was like no this is not happening anyway it's, it was looking back on it now he knew exactly what he was doing but you had it then about an hour to do it all again uh, yeah about mm. 45 minutes he knew exactly what he was doing he was teaching me a lesson and a girl who's uh, in the who I talk about in the book Helena who I was working with she uh, came in and helped me and I went to get my knives that was it the tears were building on my eyes that was it I'm off I'm I'm going back home that's it I'm finished and this this girl Helena she grabbed me pinned me against the wall she says you're not going anywhere this is it you got to fight this, and I did, and uh, that was one of those moments I'll always look back on. You know? mm. I'm reminded, actually, I should have said this at the start, because we've got your wife, Michaela, and we've got little Casper here <laughs> at the front. Uh, hi, Casper. Hi, Casper. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you okay to stay for an hour? Because we know you've got a busy family life and you've got a, you've got a kitchen to run. You're okay yeah. for the hour? No, no, we're here for the day. We're, we're here for the day. day. And you're, and you're, and you're close, so you're going to sign books afterwards? We're going to sign books. Really excellent, excellent. All right, yeah. so the, Tom will be sticking around to sign books. He doesn't have to rush back and get the potato peelings ready <laughs> for the staff dinner. Um, the, um, you, you, were the, you were with Pierre Kaufman for a long time. It was about five yeah. years, I think. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was very important, not only as a mentor, but he mm. then passed you on to the next stage of your journey, really, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. So. 
at, at towards the towards the end of I did five years in total with Chef, and I did two and a half years, and then I went away to Paris for a year, and then I came back and did another two and a half years. But at, towards the end of my two and a half years, uh, I thought, you know, I'm ready now. I can I'm ready to be a chef, and I was about. 21 years old or something <laughs> and like looking back on and now I was nowhere near being ready and I was offered this job to be a sous chef which is like under the head chef and the money was great and the hours were less and I thought yeah I'm going to do this so yeah. I, got, I got all my courage up and I went to chef in the office and I said chef uh, I'm going to leave no you're not no chef I want to leave no you're not where are you going I'm going to work here no you're not you're going to Paris and that was that. That was the end of the conversation, really. And uh, <laughs> off I went to Paris and uh, went to work for a chef called Guy Savoie in Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, with, with lots of French at your fingertips, no doubt. Yeah, it was great. I knew how to say bonjour and ça va. Yeah. <laughs> how does that work out in a restaurant, then? Uh, a lot of peeling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm getting an alternative title for your book here, yeah. Peelings. Um, and, but I mean, again, that's described in the book. It was rough, wasn't it? You were sleeping on a mate's floor for a year. Yeah, Dominic, who's here today, uh, Dominic and I started at Glen Eagles together, and we used to sit in his room and read books about, like, Marco Pierre White books, and that was the inspiration to go to London. And Dominic was already in Paris, and uh, that was, like, helped me move across. So I said to him, listen, I only need to stay for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, just put me up for a couple of weeks. So he had this little studio in the 7th, a year later, I was still sleeping on the Lilo. <laughs> like a Lilo in the kitchen yeah, floor or something. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it was just, I think I was earning uh, about 5,000 francs. So that's about just under 500 quid. Yeah. And on, you know. That would be a month. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> living, in, living in Paris, paying the rent, you know, to metro, metro every day. So. You know, we, we had our beer money, Dom, and that was it, really, didn't we? Yeah. Is that the point in your life, there was a period in your life, you, I know you've talked about, when you were actually not only working every hour you could at the restaurant, but you were also doing wee bits in between for other restaurants or whatever, just to get a bit of pin money? Is yeah, it where I get that's what we had to do. We were working uh, 90, 90 to 100 hours a week, and then uh, we were uh, having to, we had our days off, and like most people in the catering industry, you get your salary, and most of it's gone by about the second week, you know, so you've actually not got any money left at all. Uh, so we had to go, like, on our days off, we'd go and do, like, some outside catering. And that's where I met my lovely wife, and uh, that's where we got our pocket money. Yeah. I mean, it was a long time before she became your lovely wife. We might get to, we'll get to that right. later. <laughs> uh, because she had to give up a glamorous life at Burj Al Arab to come back to Leith. That's right. Um, <laughs> as anybody would, as any... As any person would, obviously. Um, but she doesn't regret it. Of course she doesn't regret it. So what happened after Paris? Was it Paris to Monaco? Was that the next step? No, Paris remember. back to London. And then from London, went to work for the world-famous Alain Ducasse in Monte Carlo. Uh, what I think is the greatest restaurant in the world, restaurant Louis Quinze, mm -hmm. in the heart of Monte Carlo, if anyone's been. And... Uh, Stayed there for two two years, which was a phenomenal experience. And again, that was a, was that a, that was a bigger setup again, more chefs. Were you back to peeling? Uh, yeah, well, I was cleaning a lot there. Yeah, no, so so I was sous chef in London, which was a great. You know, I'd managed to get to sous chef, and I was under the chef, and you know, was, had lots of responsibility, doing the ordering, all that. But by this stage, I knew that I needed to get. You know, I was I was I was now matured a lot as a chef, mm. and I knew that. I wanted my own restaurant and I knew that I had to get back to France because it, being in France gives you this completely different angle on cooking. You know, you're in touch with the whole market thing, the seasonality, mm -hmm. and just the, 
the absolute finesse for cooking is unbelievable. So I knew I had to get back to France and I was prepared to give up the sous chef level and I went to work for Alain Ducasse and when you work for Alain Ducasse, every single chef who comes into Alain Ducasse starts at the bottom, which is a great, which is a great way of doing it, I think. And, uh, and uh, I did and then, uh, you know, over the two years I moved up and moved up, but it was an amazing experience. Mm. Yeah. You're obviously very proud of your cleaning because there is a picture of the kitchen. No, at, it's uh, at Alain Ducasse, the there's a picture of the, the, the surfaces are absolutely spotless and you say you actually got uh, almost like tennis elbow <laughs> from cleaning surfaces with a toothbrush. That's right, that's right. We had to, every, after every service, lunch and dinner, you could, the stove, it was just like a mirror. It was, an, uh, it was just unbelievable. And you'd been scrubbing so much and you just about finished and like a drop of sweat would come off and like explode on this mirror stove and you'd have to start again. It was, and it was, like, it was like being in the army. I've never been in the army. But and you I must, think have, you must have found this incredibly frustrating because from quite early on, you, you know, had a confidence that you, you, you well, not confidence, you wanted to start your own restaurant. Mm. And yet you're, you've got this long apprenticeship, this long learning process, which almost seems never ending. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I just wonder at what point, was it when you were at Ducasse, that you, that you actually thought, no, this is, I, I, I can now open my own restaurant. There must have come a point where you went from wishing you could to thinking I can. Yeah, I think that when I went to Ducasse, I went there and I, I knew exactly why I was there. So every night, you know, every dish, I, I, was, I was seeing new dishes, I was experiencing, you know, seeing new products. I was back to my room and we were writing and writing, I was writing about it. And the same was when I was in Paris with Dominic, every night we'd, We'd come back, we'd, we'd worked 16, 17 hours a day, but we were so enrolled and, and wrapped in this passion mm. and knowing where we wanted to get to. We're writing down all these recipes and dishes, and even today we look back on these, these books and we, we take inspiration from mm. them. Yeah. But you didn't, did you? You didn't start your own restaurant. You went and worked on a yacht after that, didn't you? That's right. I had a wee timeout period um, after working for Alan Ducasse. I was put in contact with the owners of JCB Diggers, uh, who is a lovely family called Sir Anthony and Lady Bamford, and that was a, a little bit of a different experience. We uh, they, they also own Dalesford Organic? Dalesford Organic, uh, yeah, which is uh, an unbelievable setup if everyone's down in London or in the Cotswolds. And I if you've got a huge amount of money about your person, <laughs> it's, uh, it's lovely, lovely yeah. stuff. No, exceedingly wealthy people, but incredibly incredibly good people and very, very foodie. But, uh, and again, I mean, she, uh, you talk about her, she an immense passion for food, and it didn't matter whether it was a very simple salad or whether it was a five-star meal at a, at a proper restaurant, right. she just enjoyed the food. Yeah, she did, but boy, it had to be right, you know, mm. it was like, you know. But what a very different experience, because you've gone from this kind of hothouse, as it were, this, this, you know, one of the best restaurants in the world, working under, under extreme pressure, to a different kind of pressure where you wake up in the morning and you're in a different country and you've got to go to the local market and start buying stuff for lunch. That's right. They, they had this yacht and it wasn't your everyday kind of yacht. It was like a $65 million worth of private yacht, you know, so suddenly I was there. But wherever we were in the Med or, you know, wherever, every morning when they were on board, we would go to the local market. So as far as being, you know, as a, from a chef's point of view, it was just unbelievable. I had no food costs. And we'd go to the markets together and like going to food markets in places like Sicily. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's just like seeing the whole passion that these people have for food, you know, the people of, of Sicily or anywhere on the Riviera or going into Greece or whatever. It was fantastic. And then in the market, 
I would then make up the menus for the day from what I saw on the market, and it was just unbelievable. Is that what lit, lit the light bulb above your head that said, you know, from nature to play? Talk a little bit about from nature to play. Yeah, the from nature to play thing, I think, really started with Lady Bamford, you know, because after I left Alan Ducasse, I was just so... My whole world was three-star Michelin. That's what, that was, I, was, I was obsessed with Michelin stars and that kind of... that whole kind of world. And then taking myself away from it and actually... Slowing, slowing the pace down a little bit. Not that intense, intense pressure every single day. And then finding things like these food markets and just enjoying the love of like experiencing in southern Italy tomato and mozzarella salad. Mm -hmm. is, is, it's like, hold on a minute, this is actually what it's all about. Mm. You know, and that simplicity of cooking. But the local markets need to be, they are, about the seasons. It's whatever you know. It's whatever the farmer happens to have, or whatever the yeah. people tend to have found in the in the fields that day. Yeah, it, very much so. And the seasonality thing in in Europe, that they don't know any other way. You know, you go to a market. If you were to drop in a market and not know what season it is, you could look at the market and you'd know straight away what season it is. So that's what I've really implemented in the, the at the kitchen restaurant and yeah the, that was the idea behind kitchen yeah it's it's we're, actually, we're now i'm completely fanatical about the season it's going three years the, the restaurant's been going for three years and now the difference now from when we the, it was always there at the beginning but having been open for three years and the suppliers and just so proud of the uh, the, the natural larder that we have here in scotland mm. it's it just makes my life so easy. I, actually, I mean, I, I, Bogo, I mean, this is kind of, we're fast forwarding a bit now, but I'm going to bring it in anyway because it ties into what you've just been saying. But there's a lovely little anecdote in here, or a vignette, where someone comes to your door and he's a student, but he's, he's also a, he comes to the kitchen. He's a forager. Yeah, he's a forager. He's learned foraging from his family. Yeah, and this is like one of the, an example of the exciting things that are happening in Scotland today. There's this young guy called Ben Robertson, 21 years old. And his father has taught him to, to forage for all the natural foods that, you know, the wild foods. And uh, he's, he's quit university and he's now selling to all the restaurants in Edinburgh, you know, wild herbs, Jerome mushrooms just now, chanterelles, all these kind of things. And uh, he's doing fantastically well. And he's just living off the land, you know. I, I'm incredible. I, I'm totally naive about food. I, I hadn't realised that Scotland actually had things like Jerome and Chanterelle. Oh, yeah, they're in abundance just now. If you, if you go up into the countryside or down into the borders, like we do most Sundays just now, and uh, if you, once you find your patch, you can, you can pick mushrooms, you know, until the cows come in, you know. Mm. They're, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. But it's not just the mushrooms. I mean, Scotland just has... As the seasons go on, it, it, from a, from a chef's point of view, it's very easy. If, as long as you work with the seasons, your menus kind of take care of themselves, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's... Yeah, that's I mean, there's some lovely wee essays in the book. There's one on pork, which was fascinating to me, and there's the one in Orkney. Oh, yeah. The Orkney. only part of Scotland that you really talk about in detail is Orkney. I mean, obviously, there's a passion there for that part of the world. Yeah, this, well, this, the passion to go to Orkney was because of... Um, the, guy, the guy who dies from a scallops is a guy called Robert. And uh, I'd spoken to Robert several times on the phone, and boy, he was like some kind of, God, get up here, Tom, you know, and he's kind of like Highland and Islands accent and that. So we did, and Mark and myself, the photographer, we finished, finished service on a Saturday night, drove right up to, the, up to Scrabster in that area, and went over to Orkney. And it was just fascinating being out with these guys. They're, they're risking their life for my restaurant, you know, for, you know to hand dive, dive down for these scallops icy cold waters, currents, everything, and coming up with these incredible scallops. And you know, the passion that they had, 
and then it just all kind of hits home really of uh, you know like the respect that they're showing to the scallop and they're placing it nicely and they're chilling it and, and they're getting it to me as quickly as possible and that whole chain it's about trying because without the suppliers my mm. restaurant doesn't work yeah well, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, I mean, all of this hard work and everything is paid off in spades. Again, I meant to mention this in the introduction and I forgot, but you've just been, uh, just this weekend, you came second in the uh, Eat Out top, one, top UK 100 restaurant list. You came second to Heston Blumenthal. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that really is. Thank you. I mean, 100, 100 restaurants in the UK. And, and in Edinburgh, we've got the number two. I think that's absolutely splendid. And that's, I mean, that's the latest in a long line of accolades that we'll maybe talk about in a few minutes as well. Sure. But you, you've, we're now at a stage at which you've been doing the yacht thing. Do you, do, do you come back, is, is, does, a yacht, does working on a yacht then lead to the thing where I'm going to come back and set up a restaurant? Yeah, I think it, it was getting to the stage that you could, the yacht thing was, it was fantastic while it was there. It was great. It was rock star wages, which I really wasn't used to at the time, you know. And, it was really, I was there and uh, the idea was to try and save as much as possible and to come back and, uh, and try and set up the restaurant. Did you always have it in mind that it would be Scotland you would come back to? Well, originally we, we had offers from London and people were saying, you know, we'll back you, we'll back you. But then when, once you really start to analyse it, you realise that you're never really going to own much of that business, you know. Mm. And uh, it's an awful lot of uh, meals you're going to have to sell to pay back, you know, the, the rent of a restaurant in central London. So. No, we were getting married in uh, August of 2006, and by this time it was January, and uh, we decided to move back to Edinburgh. And, uh, so beginning in 2006, you moved to Edinburgh, you start looking for a uh, premises, yep. and you end up in Leith. <laughs> Listen, yeah, Leith. In a, in, a, in a restaurant premises that has proved the death knell to restaurants before you. Yeah, that's right, it was the proper graveyard of restaurants, <laughs> yeah. No, but the, the whole thing about coming home was, you know, I, I can't explain, like, having family here and having helping hand, because to set up a restaurant, I mean, I, I know how to cook, but let's be honest with I'll be honest with you, I don't know much about setting up a business, you know. So, like, coming back and having, like, my father here and my parents here and people around my, my parents who can help, you know, you know a plumber, you know, you know a mm. joiner, and, uh, and that's what we did, and we came back and uh, we wrote the business plan, and... Uh, off we went and we tried to borrow some money. <laughs> did it help, did, I mean, you know, did it help that Martin Wishard had already set up in Leith at that time? Because, I mean, this is a place that, you know, 10, 15 years ago would have been a, a graveyard for restaurants. Yeah, definitely, and Martin, Martin is definitely the, uh, the godfather of, uh, of cooking in Leith, you know, and, uh, you know, he's done incredibly well down there, you know, and after 10 years, but he, I think he, he helped bring the whole area up mm. to what it is today. and it, you know, the more good restaurants down there is pulling people yeah. down into... It gets a kind of critical mass. Aye, and, exactly, yeah. you know, and people know... Which like is really dispiriting for the rest of us who don't live in Leith. <laughs> but know. once we get that tram sorted, we'll so be all right. You know? <laughs> Aye. Uh, <laughs> um, any trouble persuading Michaela away from the Burj Al Arab? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's easy, isn't it? You know, Burj Al Arab, Leith, no. No, it was... Um, it was, it was, it was, the thing about the kitchen restaurant, it's always been such a joint effort, you know, and... Because we should say she was, uh, I mean, she's front of house. She was, what was she doing in, at the Burj Al Arab? She was, Burj Al Arab, she was, uh, she was working in sales and everything and looking... And, so she, yeah. had, she knew that part of the business? Yeah, she knew that part of the business, but she was trained so in the Savoy with the Savoy group and she worked at the Savoy and Claridge's. And um, 
She just had this incredible eye for detail. It's a perfect combination. Yeah, it is. And it's the secret to a successful marriage in catering, I would say, you know, because <laughs> it's very, it's, it's not your normal kind of job. And, you know, I, I am working an awful lot, but, mm. you know, so it's a lifestyle. And as, as a restaurant, the two of us, it's a lifestyle. And because she's so important, the restaurant just doesn't work without Michaela. It's simple. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think you're off your heads because you, um, <laughs> well, you, you decide, oh, we're, go we're going to move back to Scotland and we're going to open up a restaurant in Leith. Uh, and you open the restaurant in June 06 and you get married in August. Properly off our heads, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was a, that was unbelievable. So, as Ian said, we, we opened the restaurant in June and we were getting married in August. And it was like we were opening this restaurant, the stress of opening a restaurant. And then suddenly I had this new stress because when we opened the restaurant, suddenly we had four for lunch and six for dinner. And I'm like, oh Jesus, what, 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 is it? what do I do here? Because you know? mm. we had no customers. Mm. And then slowly then we're having that kind of stress and then we get home at midnight half past midnight and she says right do you want to discuss the um, table plan for the wedding <laughs> i'm like are you serious <laughs> no but it was it was a great day we shut the restaurant for the saturday at all my wife is swedish uh, as many of you all know and lots of people come in from all over the world and from the burj al arab as well you know and uh, here they are now so <laughs> I thought that was a tram for a minute, but that's <laughs> not, not in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 take my, I, t I do take my half to the period for managing to keep, to, to keep all these balls in the air as it mm. was. I mean, tell us about a typical day. I mean, is there such a thing as a typical day? What normally happens in the, in the restaurant? Well, talking about the balls in the air, because th this whole thing with writing the book is something that I'm very, very proud of my wife, because she has actually written the text to go in the book. and. Uh, it's just incredible how we've actually managed to do this over the year. And I'd just like to thank her very much because it's, it means so much to me. And she's chased me for like a year, I'm telling you. She's chased me to get this information out of my head and put it down. And considering that, you know, this is her second language as well, it's just an incredible achievement. Yeah. So there were stages like we were going on family holidays and like when she's got me in the car and we're on the motorway, that's when she's got me and I can't go anywhere, you know. So, She's like, fire, tell me about the grouse, and she's like typing away, you know, so, uh, yeah, life is quite hectic, and with a wee, wee Casper as well, it's busy, but, yeah. but we love it, we love it. And, uh, so what, what, what time would you start in the morning? What time would you get to the, I mean, I mean is, is your first protocol the restaurant, or are you off looking, I mean, you can't be off looking at markets and things, you can't be going and looking at fish and all that no, sort of stuff. No, unfortunately, I would if there was some markets to go and have a look at, around, well, there is the one down in Leith, but it's a bit small now, but I, I'm in the restaurant between seven and half past seven every morning. Uh, finish there, three, half past three, back, half past four, finish. So half that's past all 11. the prepping. The seven till the three is the prepping. Seven till seven till quarter past twelve is prep for lunch, and during that period, everything comes into the restaurant fresh. All the suppliers come in, the scallops, all you know, and we have to get ready for lunch. So, like at this time of year, it's just absolutely manic, and it's a lot of pressure, you know. And the boys and the girls in the kitchen are in at seven o'clock. And they're working, and they don't stop until midnight, and uh, that's the way it is, really, in, in this industry. And so, why do you do it? Because I love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's it's just like this complete adrenaline. But you know, the buzz of having your own restaurant is outweighs anything like Michelin stars or anything like that. Going out into the restaurant and seeing pe seeing the restaurant alive, people having a great time, enjoying your food, and enjoying the great food of Scotland. You know, mm. so uh, it's it's. it's 
it's, it's great. And I, we should say again that, because, that, that from nature to play, the, 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 the philosophy behind it, it goes by the seasons. Does that mean that you, I mean, do you do what? For, do you do four menus a year, one for each season? No, I could do four menus a day sometimes, you know, because I just, as, as the dishes come or as Dom and I think about the dishes, we just change it and we mm. put it on the menu. But that, I think that's part of the reason the restaurant is so successful is that if, if the fishman arrives at the back door and he says, listen, I've got this turbot or I've got this or I've got this lobster or this mackerel, right, give me it. And mm -hmm. that's on the menu. Mm -hmm. And an example is like, last on Wednesday there was the 12th of August. It was the glorious 12th. So in my in my head, there's only one thing I want to do, and is that is that is to have grouse on the menu that night. So we've finished lunch service, three o'clock in the car, straight down to the borders. One of my suppliers picked up the grouse that had been shot that day, back to the restaurant, frantically plucking them, <laughs> still plucking them. First check on order, somehow two scallops and two grouse, and you know pushing myself that extra mile is now something that I. I'm completely living on. I'm living on this complete adrenaline of, you know, I want to have grouse on my menu that night or I must change the menu next week. So it's this constant adrenaline with buses that I'm on. Mm. I, we're going to open up to questions uh, from the audience in a wee bit, but I've got a few more. I'm going to, I'm going to do some quick fire ones to you and we'll see uh, um, what, how, you, how you deal with them uh, since you're used to pressure. Uh, what's <laughs> the best, be, best meal you've ever eaten? Um, Louis Cannes. Louis Cannes. You've actually eaten there? Yeah, Not just I've worked there, but you've eaten there? Yeah, I've eaten there is well. that is that since you worked there? Yeah, since I left there, yeah. No, no, it's absolutely phenomenal. But the whole, I think it was a lot of emotions of having worked there and, you know, and then actually experiencing it on the other side. It's a must-do for any foodie, I promise you. Uh, cheap? No. No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have thought so either. All right, so what, who's, who would then, I mean, yourself aside, obviously, who's your favourite chef? Um, Pierre Kaufman in London, yeah. Definitely. That's he's partly because he taught you so much. Yeah, right? partly because he kicked my bum so much as a youngster. Yeah. Uh, no, he's an absolute legend. He's got, he's just got such a great outlook on life, and and I owe a lot to him. You know? There are some nice wee stories in the book. Um, one involves him basically selling you your first lot of crockery, <laughs> the the spare crockery from Tom Clare. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the other one is when he came up to actually see the restaurant in action. And yeah. you you just um, dispatched your uh, your your bottle washer. <laughs> That's right. Chef, chef came up and it was like a really s crazy moment. You know, it was unbelievable. I couldn't. Be Surreal doesn't even explain the feelings that I was like, experiencing. Like he was coming to work in my kitchen. That was crazy. So I was like, and uh, sure enough, it turned out to be an eventful day because we had this pot washer, and I politely said to him, "Could you peel the tatties? I need that peeled for lunch." You know. And, can you go a little bit faster, please? Because you know, one every ten minutes really isn't going to, you know, happen. Hey, man, it's okay. Now, come on, we need to go a bit faster. And he quit. Or I, I kind of said, okay, fine, you can go. So then we had no pot washer. And just to sum up, Pierre Kaufman as a man, that was it. He didn't even blink an eyelid. Straight into the pots, washing the pots and pans. And my boys in the kitchen are looking at him and thinking, hold on a minute, that's three-star Michelin chef Pierre Kaufman washing the pots and pans. And, and that just sums him up, you know, to a T, you know, it just had no, none of this, you know, razzmatazz that a lot of chefs have these days, you know, he was just a good cook. He, he's got the three Michelins, you've got one, but you got it after only been open, what, half a year? Half a year? Six months, yeah. You've been open six months six and months. suddenly you've got that Michelin. I know, that was unbelievable. How, how does that work? Do you know they're coming? Mm. 
I mean, I know it's done kind of sim Is it anonymously? Did they yeah, just turn up? Yeah, no, it's totally anonymously. Yeah. They don't phone up and say, this is Michelin here, we're sending a guy along on Wednesday. I wish they did, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's... The, uh, Michelin, the Michelin inspectors came, and you, you know, especially at the beginning, now... I try, nah, I'm lying to you, I say if I don't bother, but no, but it's... At the beginning, we were, I was just so aware that, you know, we, we were going to get inspected, but never for one minute was I thinking about a Michelin star for within six months. Anyway, we one evening finished service and we had quite a good night. I think we did about 25. So at the beginning, that was a, that was a really good night. And uh, we had uh, this lovely girl called Mary from Aberdeen. And Mary comes through with this business card at the end and she goes, Chef? Yes, Mary? There's someone from the Michelin Guide in the front there. <laughs> and this is like, my whole life has been like built up to this. Oh, oh Jesus. And, uh, Sure enough, it was the Meeklin guide, uh, <laughs> and uh, went through, and there was two inspectors sitting there. Hi, I'm whatever he was from from the Meeklin guide. Um, would you like to have a chat? I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> and that was uh, that was it. They, they they gave me no feedback at all on the meal. They give you no indication to you know what they experienced. They just want to talk. And they talked about, you know, how we set up the business and they talked about, you know, what was my philosophy and all this kind of stuff. And then they said, you know, can we have a look around the kitchen? And uh, sure enough, we, we went and had a look around the kitchen and uh, that was that really. They said, would, would you like to join the Michelin Guide? And to, that is to actually get into the book, you know, because you can come in at any level entry. You can just have your, your restaurant in the book. And uh, that was it. So. I think we, that was in about like the end of July kind of thing, and as we, as we were talking about earlier, we went we got married in the August, and we went away on the honeymoon in January, and uh, went away on honeymoon, came back, opened the restaurant for one day, thinking oh Jesus January how are we going to do, and then we got a phone call that morning from a friend saying congratulations, I'm like congratulations what you've won a Michelin star. And that was it. And uh, it just went crazy from there, really. I think it says a lot about you that even on your honeymoon, though, you weren't on honeymoon, were you? <laughs> you, you, couldn't, you couldn't find that uh, the, the local restaurants just seemed to be the usual burgers and uh, pizzas and that. So what did you do? I went and got a job, yeah. <laughs> we, went on, we went to St. Lucia in the Caribbean on, on honeymoon. And, you know, you go to the Caribbean, you know, every, wherever I want to go, I want to eat local food. And we went to the carrot in St. Lucia, spag bog, pizza, burgers. I was like, jeez, I was going crazy. And uh, finally, we found this like fantastic hut at the end of the beach like you get in the Caribbean. And there was this great lady cooking proper Caribbean food. So that was it. I was going there every day. And then like... And Mikula basically found you in there, right? Yeah, yeah. she did. Yeah, I, I did my 20 minutes of sunbathing, then got bored, and then off I went, really, you know. <laughs> There's some nice photographs in the book of that, of that moment as well. Yeah, no, it was, really, it was wonderful. And I was there, and the fish would arrive, and I'd help her fillet the fish, and then the cruise ship would arrive, and all the tourists would get off, and, you know, I'd be there, right, what can I get you? Rum punch, right, here we go, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was good fun. All right, very quickly, before I open it up, what's it like, uh, with television, television chef? Um, mm. You've succumbed I have to succumbed. doing it to the, the, great, bit, yeah. the great British menu. Yeah. Um, is that what we're going to be seeing you on for the foreseeable, or have you got other ideas in the pipeline? Um, three years ago, if you'd asked me about television, it would have been a no, just a flat no. Um, 
finally I was persuaded to go in for this competition and I was asked to talk to other restaurateurs who had been in my position and the feedback was that, you know, if you can just manage to, because I, I just didn't want to leave the stove. I couldn't, I couldn't trust anyone. I didn't want to leave the stove and it was my restaurant and I feel I didn't want to be like red peppers, green peppers. That was my idea of hell really, you know. So, so I was asked to do the, the show and I spoke to a fellow restaurateur, a guy called Sat Baines who has a restaurant in Nottingham and he explained the impact that it had on his business. So we decided to go for it. And, you know, as it, at the end of the day, it is our business and it's our livelihoods. And by doing this television, it's opened up so many more doors. I'm at the, I'm at the stove at the kitchen 97, 98% of the time. But if I'm not there, I'm doing something to benefit the business in some way. And this television has been, had a phenomenal impact on our business because people coming to Edinburgh from all over the world now I've maybe seen you on telly and they want to come and try mm. and um, for that I'll always be grateful really. Okay, last question from me. Um, you've murdered a man. <laughs> you're in America, you're on death row. What's the last meal? Oh, well. You can have as much carbohydrate in it as you want. <laughs> West coast of Scotland, sunny day, whole langoustines caught that day, got garlic mayonnaise and glass of nice dry Riesling or something. Just Longestine? Longestine, whole Longestine where you can break them up and crack the claws and oh, for me that's heaven. I You'll die it. a happy man. Yeah. You'll <laughs> die a happy man. Um, well lots of us have eaten at your restaurant will also die happy because we've eaten your food. That's been great. Tom, I'm going to open it up for questions now and I'm sure we've got lots of recipe questions coming up. People saying, look I've tried the pig's head. Uh, <laughs> Uh, tried to cook the pig's head, I should say. Well, I'll say for that person that actually there is photographic step-by-step -step instructions there in the is, book yeah, on is, how to yeah. do the pig's head if you've ever fancied doing it. Um, <laughs> so we've got a roving mic, so just stick your hand up and I will point to you and the microphone will come to you. And right, we've got a second row here and then we'll take the guy in the front row after him. You come to keep your hand up, sir, and we'll just, so the mic knows where to go. You pass it along, thank you very much. You have to press it on. You're fine. Um, I have so many questions, but um, maybe a kind of obvious one. Um, how keen are you to get the second and beyond Michelin star or is that not particularly important to you? Um, I'm keen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm not obsessed with it. I'm not obsessed with it because the success of the business is, is such an enjoyment. I just, I just, we, we've, we just keep reinvesting and trying to evolve and let the dishes evolve and, and just keep improving all the time. And I, I th I'm hopeful that one day it will come, but until it, until it's, it's not the be all and end all, but it, it would be very nice. Yeah. Just another question, it's just a, a comment. Yeah. I, I think the, the key <laughs> thing about your restaurant, certainly for me, is that you are actually in that kitchen. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I would hate to see a situation where, where you weren't. Yeah. No, I I'm sure it would be a much easier life for you. But no, no, I totally agree with you. And I, I often get asked the question about, you know, expansion and all that kind of thing. And I think it's really important that if we were ever to expand, we'd have to identify another chef of the caliber that, okay, we'd open another restaurant, but it would be under the same company, but mm. this is the chef and this is where Tom Kitchen's cooking. Yeah. Because I think more and more, and we don't need to talk about who, but you know, chefs with their name above the door, but never cooking there is wrong. Okay, mm. you might be off every now and again, but not cooking there at all, I think is wrong. You know? 
Seems to be something that sweary chefs do quite a lot. <laughs> Sir. You spoke about grouse. We're in the home of, homeland of grouse. We're in the season of grouse. You told us about your frantic dash to the borders to get grouse on the menu for the glorious 12th. Yeah. Now, we've been brought up to think that get grouse should hang until it's almost mm. falling apart. How do you reconcile these two? Oh, um, I totally disagree with hanging grouse. They stink. <laughs> uh, you know, like old grouse is my idea. It's an absolute nightmare. Young grouse, um, very, very tender. Um, and I only use grouse from now, the 12th of August, until early October, because after that, again, the meat gets tougher and the, the taste is too strong. So some people disagree with me, but my whole, out, my whole outlook on grouse is young and fresh. Yeah. Is that, does that just go for a grouse, Tom, or would you say that about other game birds? No, other game birds I think you have to hang slightly, but I, I, I don't get this thing of eating something. It's like a really, really smelly cheese. I just don't get that really. Is that Okay, thanks very much. Uh, another question. Oh, somebody, yeah. Eventually somebody's going to say how to get a reservation, but keep your hand up. Uh, <laughs> keep your hand up so the mic can find you, please. There you go. For a lot of us who are native to Scotland, the vegetables are potatoes, turnips, carrots and peas and perhaps beetroot. And I wonder when you speak about nature's larder, including girolles and things that a lot of us we're not familiar with when we grew up, how you kind of balance in the more traditional Scottish root vegetables. Um, yeah, the, the root vegetables play a, play a big part in my cooking once we come into the winter months, and especially with the game dishes. Um, the, the vegetables, to be honest with you, the vegetables is something that I struggle with quite a lot. It's, it's the only product that I struggle with in Scotland. Um, but. I have a guy, I like it on the Isle of Arran, I have a guy called Robin Gray, and he used to be a chef, and he is now, he has these great vegetable plantations. And uh, he, being a chef, he'll grow me like little courgettes with like the flowers still attached, and you know, using these, and you know, his tomatoes, his broad beans, his peas. And um, that's, that's, that's the interesting part about trying to use these different products. But I do agree with you, the, the staple vegetables are, uh, they, they play a big part, but for example, beetroot. There's so many things you can do with a beetroot. Instead of, you can roast it, you can puree it. Just now we're, we're making a, a sweet, uh, chilled beetroot soup and mixing it with natural yogurt. Recipes in the book, nice recipe. Uh, you know, so there's so many different things that you can do with the vegetables, you know, so maybe we'll do a vegetable book one day as well. Yeah, and of course you can make great soups. Lots of, lots of green veg make good soups. Um, next question, who's got another question? Oh, lady here, we'll bring the mic to you. Just wait a sec, thanks very much. I've, this, there was a, you're not in this book, are you? This, there's a new book just come out of recipes from Scotland, from people's childhoods and that. Favorite oh yeah, recipes. it's Sue. Yeah, Sue Lawrence. Sue Lawrence it, yeah. for, uh, did you put a recipe in? I, I did, I put in, well, my mum only ever taught me to cook two things. When I was, <laughs> when I was going off to university, she thought, oh, Ian better learn to cook or he'll starve. She didn't realise there were such things as Jacob's cream crackers, <laughs> co-op cheese, and uh, Vesta chow mein. But she, um, she told me to cook two things. One was soup, um, and one was a whole silver side. A whole oh, two-pound really? silver side. <laughs> it's my mum's idea preparing me for university. Cook a, a whole roast. Right, thanks, mum. I Which you I, did that a lot then. Yeah. Well, I can cook it, but I never do, but I do cook the soups quite a lot. Madam. Thank you. My, my question actually follows on quite nicely from what Ian was saying. Um, there's a lot in the media about um, 
the demise of family cooking and also when children grow up they don't know how to cook perhaps because their, their mother hasn't been cooking. Now you've got a family of your own. Uh, what's your view on how we should encourage the younger generation to cook? Yeah, especially now that I've become a father myself, it, it's, it's changed my whole outlook on family cooking completely. And I think, I think parents really have to take a lot of responsibility with um, how they bring up their children. Because of course, if you've never, you know, with Casper, he's having, you know, fish, he's having vegetables. We're trying, it doesn't, it doesn't always work, but you know, it does work a lot of the time. But those flavors, he's experiencing those flavors from an early age. And of course, if, if the only thing you've tasted is uh, fried foods and white sun-blessed bread and, you know, this ham that isn't actually ham or something, and you've tasted that all your life, and then someone says to you, right, I'd like you to try some local chanterelles and you know some wild mm. garlic. You're going to that's it's going to hit your taste buds, and you're going to you're not you're not going to accept it, are you? So I think families really have to take a lot of responsibility with the children. Yeah. So it's a lot. I get a lot of varieties of flavour early on in the in a child's life. Well, I'm no expert on it, but you know that's exactly what we're trying to do with Casper. Mm. Is uh, you know, get him tasting as much as possible, and it's working, you know, he seems, mm. he seems to enjoy it. I think it also helps now, there's been a rise of the farmer's markets, and I think that helps because you get wee nibbles, you get wee freebies as you go along, and if you take your kids along to a farmer's market, before you know it, they're trying goat's cheese, um, or they're having a helping of porridge with, with raisins in it or something, yeah, you definitely. know, or they're having a bit of roast pork on a roll. Yeah, and it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been a terrific change, I think, in, in Scottish life is this idea that, I mean, I know it's not like a French market or an Italian village market, it's not far off it. Yeah, but in the restaurant as well, we do, we do this um, surprise tasting menu, you know, you all know about tasting menus, but it's a surprise one. So you have no idea what's coming. So if you read my menu, it's like pig's head, bone marrow, tripe, sea urchins, you know. Yeah. And there is, a, you know, more products, you maybe more prime products, but a lot of people say, right, we're going to go for the tasting menu, but I'm really scared. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you go and talk to them afterwards, and they say, I can't believe I've just eaten pig's head and crispy pig's ears, and I really enjoyed it. That's you know? good. And uh, it's, it's about taking people out their comfort zones, maybe, mm. and uh, testing the, you know, and you know, and it opens them up, and hopefully it'll open them up, and they'll really enjoy, start to enjoy food, because at the end of the day, enjoying food is a beautiful thing. I think the one that defeated me was the sea urchin. You didn't manage that? Just the look of it, just <laughs> the, the wee sea urchin shell there. Um, uh, when you came with yeah, Tony? Yeah, I came with Tony Burdain, yeah. and that was the point at which I thought, I, I, I actually I can't, I've tried everything else, but that one, I think, I've had the hairy pig's ear, I've eaten the hairy pig's ear, and I've had this and the other. It shouldn't have been hairy. The uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> uh, The razor clams, which are lovely, of course. Yeah. Um, things that you used to when you were a kid, you'd jump up and down on them on the beach, wouldn't you? Or just yeah, throw, toss it, them yeah. back into the sea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're absolutely lovely to eat. I mean, that's another thing, is a lot of stuff that we just never thought of as being food. Aye, or, or, you exactly. Know, and um, it's all here on our doorstep. Yeah, and things like things that used to be cheap cuts or cuts that people turned their nose up at, mm -hmm. which are actually incredibly tasty. Oh, the, the, if you can be bothered to, because as you say in the book, a lot of it, it takes a bit of preparation. Yeah, I, the, the the cheaper cuts in my eyes are, are a lot tastier than the, than the prime cuts. But I think, especially like with the recession and everything, chefs now, I think a lot of chefs have been quite lazy in that it's very easy to take a prime cut of fillet of beef or a prime piece of salmon or something, and just cook it. But now, of course, like you know, the recession and m making menus cheaper, chefs are having to use their training mm -hmm. and use cheaper cuts, and that's where we're kind of finding out. Like some chefs actually don't have that mm -hmm. training and that that knowledge, and uh, 
is, is working against them. In that way. You made the decision early on um, to, well, I mean, early on before you started the restaurant, to that there would be this big glass window and everybody could see everything you did. <laughs> yeah. um, is that was that daunting? I mean, is is that daunting the, the, when you're in there and you, you can out the corner of your eye? I know you you don't really look stare out at the audience, but at the corner of your eye, you know that they're sitting there waiting for their starters. Yeah, we took the decision to do the window into the into the kitchen, and because we were. We've got nothing to hide. And people are so interested, again, because of television, which is great. They're so interested in what actually happens. And sometimes we have a good service and we're all joking around. But, you know, it does happen that we have a bad service. So if you've got, like, 15 checks on, you've got, like, starters going on table four, main courses, and there's, like, one table after the other after the other. Suddenly people are paying a lot of money in the restaurant. Suddenly everything's to do with timing. The fish comes up, the guys cook the fish, it's overcooked. What do you do? It's your restaurant, these are the customers, they're paying a lot of money for this piece of turbot or lobster or whatever. It's morally not right that I say, right, okay, doesn't matter, we'll send that mm. fish. So, but the problem is you've got four or five different tables and that is going to completely cause, it's going mm. to cause complete chaos. And in the heat of the moment, it might be carefully passed back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and that's what happens, and uh, people can people can see that in the restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been to your restaurant several times, and it is, it's like a ballet watching you folk at work behind <laughs> that glass. But you never seem to be. I mean, nobody, I've never seen anybody panic. There's no, maybe it's like what they say about ducks or that, you know, it's come on the surface, but just below they're paddling like hell. I think you've got it in a nutshell. Is that what it is? <laughs> so they're just behind that glass, you're yeah. all sort of you're running yeah. around. Yeah. yeah, but now I'm immune to it, and uh, we just get on with it, really. You just get on with it. Yep. Good. Can we get another question, please? Oh, we've got two. We'll take this uh, gentleman here, because that's quite easy, and then we'll come to you after. You've talked a bit about um, the style of your mentor, um, yeah. Pierre Kaufman, and we know all about the sweary chef. Yeah. Um, can you reflect a little bit on your own style, and is it that the tyrannical chef is the only successful chef? Um, <laughs> hmm. no, I, I think I am... I'm, I'm very firm with my chefs, but there's no doubt about it. And... Uh, I think it's a bit like once you actually, when you we always say like once you put those whites on, you know, you kind of change into this, you know, possessive and driven kind of person. And service is service. We have this classic saying in, in catering that service is service. What happens in service stays in service. And once it's finished, oh, you know, if if one of the chefs has had a, a really rough service and he's had a few, you know, things explained in his ear during service, then. After service, you know, especially with the younger chefs, and, and this didn't happen to me, but then we will then take him aside and we'll talk to him and we'll say to him, in no uncertain circumstances, why it was wrong, and and really try to you know get him to reflect on it now. And I I hope that the experiences I've had have, have, have formed me in that way that I am very firm with my chefs, but also in a way that I'm trying to give something back in a different in a different way maybe. Okay. Um, the lady up here with it. Yeah, keep your hand up, please, and we'll get the, the mic along your row. Thanks. That's, I think this might be the last question, actually. But I'm sure you'd be very happy to, if people with problems cooking a sea bass, you'd be happy to talk to them one-on-one <laughs> -on -one when you're signing books for them, obviously. Oh, of course. Hi, Tom. A personal question. I hope you don't mind me asking. What was on the menu at your wedding? What was on the menu at the wedding? And, and did you cook it? No, I didn't cook it. Um, on, at the wedding, 
with Michaela being Swedish, we had a, like a collaboration of Swedish and Scottish food. And because we had so many different nationalities coming, so we started with a, a little bit of smoked salmon and herring, which is very Swedish, with a nice little schnapps. And that was great. Toast and that went mm. down with the, well with the Scots, surprisingly. Um, then we had a haggis course, which was uh, piped in by the haggis, by the piper, which was great because, you know, we had people coming from like, from uh, Dubai and all over the world. So that was fantastic. And then we had um, some lamb with uh, Scottish gerols. And then some raspberries, I think. Wow. Very good. They did very well. That's, that's, uh, we had a chocolate cake with pigs on the top. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we were allergic. Did you have, did you have a, a proper wedding cake? Did you have a wedding cake? Yeah, we had a wedding cake as Fruit well. Fruit cake? Uh, yes, it was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mums always remember these things. Mums always remember these things. Um, I, I'm, I'm conscious it's desperately hot in here. Uh, it's hot, hotter than any tent I've been in in, in many a book festival. Um, so we're going we're gonna to go out now and get a breath of fresh air. Um, Tom is going to be, uh, I guess, the main book signing tent signing, um, and uh, we're happy to take any questions. You've got one on one. He'll be happy to sign books for you. It is a terrific book. It's not just about food porn. It's not just about the quality of the photographs, although they are excellent. It's proper recipes, nice stories, a lot of stuff about Tom's Scottish roots, a lot of stuff about why we should be proud of the produce in Scotland, and a lot of stuff that we're thinking and cooking seasonally. Thank you very much, Tom Kitchen. Thank you very much.